0: Log Talk Radio.
1: This is Abayomi Azikwey, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi azikawe uh, Today is Saturday, uh, May 21st, uh, 2022. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd we'll like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of our program, Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we'll have dispatches on the current situation involving food insecurity in West Africa. It's impacting millions upon millions of people. There have been more attacks against military personnel in the West African state of Burkina Faso. That We'll have details on that as well. Indigenous people in the South American state of Brazil have reportedly convinced several multinational mining firms to end their operations in the Amazon region. And the European Union uh, states are facing a burgeoning energy crisis resulting from the uh, EU-United States sanctions uh, related to the war in Ukraine, the special military operation by the Russian Federation in neighboring Ukraine. In the second hour, we look at the, current escalating rates of inflation and the impact in the Republic of South Africa. Also, we will examine in depth the food crisis on the African continent. Finally, we review developments surrounding the recent massacre of African Americans in Buffalo, New York. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Uh, stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude with the TPOK Jazz Orchestra under the direction of Francois Katie. And of course, uh, <clears throat> this is uh, from a concert, live concert uh, in Côte d'Ivoire in 1980. Let's listen in.
2: Pona niyo katanga i boriko kana bite. Pona niyo katanga i boriko kana bite. Na yo ka yada masimo yo siliki nga. Oh yeah! i not Yeah. Come on, gonna go
1: Welcome back. And uh that was the music of the legendary K Jazz Orchestra, uh, classic uh Pan African music, uh from nineteen eighty, uh live recording in d'Ivoire, And uh, you're listening to uh the Pan African Journal, a uh, Worldwide Radio Broadcast, and I'm your host, Abayomi Azikawe, and uh today is May twenty one. 2022, uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition of our program. Right now, we would like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, and our lead story deals with the current food deficit uh, burgeoning crisis in West Africa. The United Nations is warning that 18 million people in Africa's Sahel region face severe hunger in the next three months, uh, citing the impacts of Russia's war in Ukraine, the coronavirus pandemic, climate-induced shocks, and rising costs. The hunger crisis may press increased numbers of people to migrate out of the affected areas, said a United Nations official. The largest number of people are at risk of severe hunger across the region since 2014, and four countries, Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, and Niger, are facing alarming levels uh, with nearly 1.7 million people facing emergency levels of food insecurity there. The Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs said this on yesterday. Uh, parts of the Sahel region, a vast territory stretching across the south of the Sahara Desert, have faced their worst agricultural production in more than a decade and food shortages. Could worsen uh, as uh, the lean season arrives in late summer, Thompson Peary, a spokesman uh, for the United Nations Nobel Peace Prize-winning World Food Program, has said, the situation is definitely going to get worse before it gets better. He told reporters in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, we may see more people trying to make ends meet by migrating. It is a very, very likely possibility. Uh, Many people from the region are among migrants. We seek to travel north to Europe in hopes of economic opportunity, more stability, and safety. A combination of violence, and insecurity, deep poverty, and record high food prices is exacerbating malnutrition and driving millions to the fringes of survival, uh, Martin Griffiths, the head of the OSHA, uh, said in a statement. Spike in food prices driven by the conflict between Russia and Ukraine is threatening to turn a food security crisis into a humanitarian disaster, he said. These two countries are key producers of wheat, uh, barley, and other agricultural products, and the conflict has almost uh, entirely halted exports through the Black Sea. Griffith's office is releasing $30 million from its emergency relief fund for the four African countries. Humanitarian groups earlier this year launched appeals seeking $3.8 billion in aid for the region in 2022, uh, but they remain only 12% funded, OSHA has said. Also in Burkina Faso, 11 soldiers were killed and nearly two dozen injured by jihadis uh, targeting a military base in eastern Burkina Faso. That's according to the government in Ouagadougou. Injured soldiers have been taken to hospital and aerial support killed 15 attackers trying to flee after Thursday's attack in Majora and uh, Kopinga. The Burkina Faso Army said in a statement, for six years, the West African country has been ravaged by violence linked to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group that has killed thousands and displaced nearly 2 million people. Mutinous soldiers ousted the Democratic elected president in January promising to stem the violence, but since then, attacks have increased. Within a 72-hour period last week, nearly 60 people, including civilians and security forces, were killed in violence targeting villages in four regions across the country, according to an internal security report for aid workers that has been seen uh, by several members of the international press. This attack, my majority, uh, is yet to another indication of militants' capability to target security forces, bases. And unfortunately, showing the severity of the security situation in northern and eastern regions, said Rita Lamouri, a senior fellow at the Policy Center for the New South, a Moroccan-based organization focused on economics and policy. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African news segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, in South America, uh, some of the world's biggest mining companies have withdrawn requests to research and extract minerals on indigenous land in Brazil's Amazon rainforest and have repudiated Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro's effort to legalize mining activities in the area. The Brazilian Mining Association, IBRAM, which represents around 130 companies, conducted an internal survey of its members earlier this year, according to Raul Jungmann, uh, its president. For the first time in decades, none of the companies have current research or mining applications for gold, tin, nickel, iron, and other ores in indigenous areas, he said. Neither the survey nor its results have been reported previously. Members of the association, which accounts for 85% of Brazil's legally produced ore, include mining giants Rio Tinto, Anglo-American, and Valley. The Associated Press contacted all three companies. Rio Tinto uh, confirmed it's retracted its application for research and concessions three years ago in 2019. Anglo-American did the same in March of 2021. Val withdrew its request for research and mining concessions over the last year. Ibram's position is that it is not to request mining and research authorizations on indigenous lands unless you have constitutional regulation, Jukman said by telephone. Around two-thirds of the applications were filed uh, with federal mining agencies before the government officially demarcated them as indigenous territory, according to a study conducted by geologist Tadu Viega, a consultant uh, who also teaches at the National University of Brasilia. The collective retreat comes as and insists indigenous territories contain mineral resources vital to bringing prosperity to both the nation and native peoples. Brazil's constitution states that mining can only take place on indigenous lands after getting informed consent and under laws that regulate the activity. More than three decades later, such legislation still hasn't been approved. Bolsonaro uh, was pushing to change that even before he became president as a fringe lawmaker. Uh, during his 2018 presidential campaign, he said deposits of the metallic element uh, found under indigenous lands could transform brazil into a mining powerhouse but the proposal fell by the wayside after he took office available resources of neobium, used as an alloy for steel are more than sufficient to supply the world's projected needs according to the u.s geological survey on friday Bolsonaro uh, met with spacex and tesla chief executive elon musk in brazil and suggested producing batteries with niobium, but said afterwards must show no interest. At the moment, this is not on their radar. Uh, they think they have to wait a little longer to invest in this area, he said. Bolsonaro was repeatedly said uh, the nearly 14% of Brazil that is within indigenous territories is excessive, and that foreign governments are championing indigenous rights and environmental preservation as a gambit to eventually tap the mineral wealth themselves. Interest in the Amazon isn't about the Indian or the dam tree. It's the ore, uh, he told a crowd of prospectors in the capital of Brasilia uh, some three years ago. More recently, in March, uh, he pressured Congress for an emergency vote on the bill drafted and presented in 2020 by his mining and justice ministries to finally regulate the mining of indigenous lands. He said the emergency vote was necessary because of the war in Ukraine which threatened crucial supplies of the fertilizer potash from Russia to Brazil's vast farmlands. With the law in place, in two or three years, we will no longer be dependent on imports of potash for our agribusiness, uh, Bolisario Bolsonaro said. Agribusiness is the locomotive of our economy. Now, experts were quick to note, however, that uh, most potash deposits in Brazil's Amazon are not located in indigenous territory, according to a study from the Minas Gerais Federal University that is based on official data. Critics have argued the bill's primary purpose is providing legal cover for thousands of prospectors. The activity mushroomed in recent years amid repeated promises for regulation from Bolsonaro's government, members of which held several meetings with representatives of prospectors. The prospector's sites often grow over time, creating vast damage, uh, destroying riverbanks, contaminating waterways with mercury, and disrupting indigenous peoples' traditional ways of life. By contrast, industrial-scale mining in the Amazon produces deep scars in the forest, but mostly limited to the area of the deposit, as is the case with Caracas, Carajas, the largest open-pit iron ore uh, mine in the world, operated by Vale. In March, while Bolsonaro's parliamentary base tried to speed up the bill's progress, thousands of indigenous people and their allies protested in front of Congress, led by Brazilian singer Betano Veloso. They soon found an unlikely ally, Ibram, the mining association, which which in the past had kept a low profile. Bolsonaro's bill is not appropriate for its intended purses, purpose. Ibram said in a statement issued days later, adding that regulation of mining in indigenous territory needs to be widely debated by the Brazilian society, especially by indigenous peoples respecting their constitutional rights and by the Brazilian Congress. Truman uh, said his association issued the unusual statement first because it has decided to become more open and transparent following two mining accidents in Minas, Gerais. State in 2015 and 2019 that killed hundreds of people in contaminated waterways. The appointment uh, of Jungman, a high-profile politician who has been a minister in two center-right governments, also reflects the shift. Another reason, uh, Jungman said, is mounting pressure at home and abroad to adopt friendly and socio-environmental practices. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to the situation in Ukraine, the United States Uh, research Ebola and smallpox viruses in Ukraine. That's according to Irina Yarovaya, uh, co-chair of the Parliamentary Commission on Investigation of U.S. Biological Laboratories in Ukraine. Today, uh, we presented an analysis of which pathogens the U.S. was particularly interested in in Ukraine. We told reporters yesterday, aside from the pathogens that are territorially bound to Ukraine, the laboratories research viruses and pathogens that are endemically very far from Ukraine, such as Ebola and smallpox. According to the legislature, the information obtained indicates aggressive goal settings that underpins the foundation of these programs, de facto implemented by U.S. Department of Defense on Ukrainian soil. Unfortunately, it is necessary to particularly emphasize that the betrayal that the Ukrainian regime carried out against its own people has effectively left Ukrainian citizens defenseless in the face of these manipulations, experiments, and clandestine research that the U.S. is carrying out on Ukrainian territory, Yarovaya underscored. She noted that Russian Foreign Intelligence Services Director Sergei Naryshin spoke as the main expert on Friday's commission meeting. I would like to underscore that the dialogue that we had With the SBR chief today, combined with the proof obtained by the commission, fully confirms the U.S.-created network of biological intelligence worldwide and the implementation of active military biological exploitation of the globe and Ukraine in particular. This essentially poses a serious global threat, Yarovaya said. Also, uh, Russian and Belarusian presidents uh, Vladimir Putin and Alexander Lukashenko will hold talks in Russia's Sochi uh, on Monday. Now, that's according to Putin's press secretary, Dmitry Peskov, and they released this information yesterday. Putin's meeting with Lukashenko in Sochi is scheduled for Monday, he said, adding that it will be a bilateral contact. The two presidents agreed during the Jubilee Summit of the Collective Security Treaty Organization. CSPO, a post-Soviet Russia-led security block in Moscow on May the 16th. According to early reports, Putin is expected to hold a meeting of the Presidium of the State Council on May 25th. Peskov refrained from commenting on Putin's other plans for uh, the coming week. Now, President uh, of Russia, Vladimir Putin, uh, pointed out at a meeting of the Russian Security Council yesterday that cyber aggression against Russia As well as the sanctions attack have failed. Already today, we can say that cyber aggression against us, as well as in general, the sanctions attack on Russia, has failed. On the whole, we were ready for this attack, and this is the result of the systematic work that has been carried out in recent years. The head of state said, according to Putin, restrictions on foreign information technologies, programs, and products became one of the tools of sanction pressure on Russia. He emphasized that a number of Western suppliers have unilaterally stopped technical support of their equipment in Russia. Also, cases of limiting the work or even blocking programs after their updates became more frequent. All this should be taken into account when Russian companies, authorities, and administrations used previously installed and introduced new foreign information technologies and projects, the president Recommended. it. And uh, finally, Russia will not supply gas to anyone for free. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told reporters on Friday when commenting on a statement made by the Finnish company Gosselin saying that it will not fulfill the requirement on paying in rubles and expects gas deliveries to be suspended in coming days. We do not have information about all companies with which Gazprom uh, has contracts concluded. Uh, This is not our authority. Gazprom should be contacted on details, of course, but Russia will obviously not supply anything to anyone for free, he said. The Finnish state-owned gas company, Gassum, said in a statement earlier this week that it did not accept Gazprom's exports requirement to switch to ruble payments and would consequently not make payments in rubles or under Gazprom's exports proposed payment arrangements. The Finnish side has decided to take the disputes regarding the supply contract to arbitration, the company added. Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered on March 23rd that unfriendly states must pay for Russian gas in rubles, saying that Moscow will refuse to accept payments under gas contracts with those states, compromised currencies, particularly meaning dollars and euros. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing, and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, May 21st, 2022, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, And that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash uh, Pan-African Journal. That's uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And, of course, by logging on to uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash uh, Pan-African Journal. Not only can you have access to today's program uh, for Saturday, uh, May twenty first, 2022, but well over 1,100 other archived editions of the Pan-African Journal. This is uh, Abayomi Azikwe. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of our program. We'll take a musical interlude uh, with Judy Clay and William Bell, and we'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week. Welcome back. And uh that was uh Judy Clay and William Bell with the song entitled Private Number. And you do have our private number here at the Pan African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh for Saturday, May twenty one, twenty twenty two. We are broadcasting live uh from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners uh for uh enjoying uh this program along uh, with the host And, of course, as we mentioned in the pan African Newswire segment, there is a burgeoning food deficit crisis in the Sahel region of Africa as well. Uh, we talked about uh, the situation in East Africa, uh, the Horn of Africa. Uh, Let's listen to this report uh, that analyzes, uh, to a certain degree, uh, the
3: current situation in uh, West Africa in regard to food. We start with the unfolding humanitarian crisis in the Horn of Africa. The UN says the region is experiencing its worst drought in four decades, and the problem is compounded by a lack of humanitarian aid. As a result, millions could face famine in parts of Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia, and Djibouti. The ongoing war in Ukraine is further worsening the already worrying situation. Somalia in particular is the worst affected. DW correspondent Maria Müller traveled to the town of Dolo, where three camps for internally displaced people have sprung up in the last few months.
2: Fifteen
4: days of walking through the hot desert with little water and no food. Hirsiya Mohammed left her village with three children, but he arrived with only one. We were walking and walking. My son was very thirsty and exhausted. He asked me many times, mommy water, mommy water. He started gasping, but there was nothing, no drop of water I could give him. Her sick eight-year-old daughter died on arrival at the camp, suffering from a bad cough and weakened from the journey. As the drought worsens, children are among the most vulnerable. The UN projects that if nothing is done, 350,000 of the 1.4 million severely malnourished children could starve to death. At a nearby clinic, we meet mothers waiting for treatment for their malnourished babies. One of them is Ramo Noorwadere. When she lost over 100 golds due to the drought, she left her village with her nine children. Without the support of her relatives, they wouldn't survive, she says. Two of her children are malnourished.
0: I can't put him down to rest because he's sick. But since last night, swelling and fever have gone down. When we lost our livestock, we lost our minds. We can't live without our livestock.
4: Like her, many of those who fled are livestock farmers. More than half a million people have been driven from their homes this year alone, according to the World Food Programme. More than six million are now facing critical hunger.
3: This drought has the face of a child.
2: And not only are children suffering from malnutrition, they are also suffering from other risks,
5: uh, such as early marriage in the case of girls, and then being recruited in armed groups in the case of boys.
4: The Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab is a constant threat in this region. These women have come from a town which has been under siege by Al-Shabaab for the last seven years. We
0: were denied from farming our land blocked from growing our greens. the water access was blocked there was no access to food either and no cars moving we left because of that we came on foot we walked for several nights we grabbed our children and walked away in order to survive people
4: try to earn money in nearby villages and buy food with the little they have inflated prices make the situation even worse The prices
3: of food in Somalia were already soaring up because people's livestock are dying, cereal harvests are way below long-term averages. We are concerned that the war in Ukraine could further exacerbate what were already soaring prices in Somalia.
4: Somalia is heavily dependent on Ukraine and Russia for its wheat imports. With the port of Odessa in Ukraine now closed, the UN World Food Program is warning that the conflict could further drive up food prices.
3: We are having to prioritize to really target those most in need for immediate life-saving, but that means that we are taking from the hungry to feed the starving.
4: WFP needs 192 million dollars urgently to avert famine that could hit as early as mid-year. It's a race against time.
3: Let's talk more about this with Francesco Regamonti. He is the Regional Humanitarian Coordinator for Oxfam in East and Central Horn of Africa. Hello, Francesco. Thanks for joining us. So, millions in the Horn of Africa, especially in Somalia, are facing risk of farming. What is the driving force behind this?
6: Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Uh, There are like a number of drivers for this crisis uh, conflict climate change increased creating a risk of increased drought and floods the effects of covid we should not forget that the horn of africa was hit last year by the worst locust infestation in years and of course the increase of prices are contributing to this to this crisis
3: so many different factors but who's affected the most?
6: This crisis, unfortunately, is very unequal. It's affecting part of the of the countries where where there has been less investment by the local government, and is affecting women and children. Just to give you an idea, there are at the moment in Somalia 1.4 million children that they are malnourished. That's like more than the population of Munich. There are 350,000 people, uh, children in. Uh, in Somalia, that they are really at risk of starvation if no intervention is, is taken. And it's the same in South Sudan, 1.3 million children there, again, more than the population of Munich.
3: And as you say, rightfully so, an intervention is needed. I understand the much-needed support is being hampered by the war in Ukraine. How is that impacting the crisis
6: in the Horn of Africa? Thank you for this question. There are like a number of, of elements that they, are in, that they are at play here. First of all is the attention, the, interne- the international media attention and in the international donor attention is now focused on Ukraine and is not on the whole of Africa and East Africa. Then there is an effect on food prices because Russia and Ukraine are producers of wheat and this, and this is creating like uh, this crisis is creating an increase uh, in, in the prices which were already high before. And then the price of oil that m- is making our job and the job of our partners more, more expensive and is driving all the, all the costs up. And then there is an issue related to the, the, the price of other items like fertilizers and, and those are the effects of of the Ukraine crisis on the situation in East Africa.
3: Mm. Uh, I guess it's easier to blame the situation in Ukraine, but even before the war in Ukraine, aid alone has never been enough to tackle food insecurity in the region. People are dying and many others are suffering. What is needed to solve the problem?
6: I think it's, what is needed is a concerned effort. As you correctly pointed out, aid is not enough. We need to have Action at the local level. The local government should put resources to, affect this, to uh, address this crisis. International community should give more and more. Uh, if we are talking about like the appeal, the UN appeal, we are talking about four billion. It seems like a big amount of money, but is not. If it's compared with the money that we put for COVID or the money that we, the international community has allocated to Ukraine, so it's the political will that is that is missing. And, and we also need like a concerned effort of all the actors, UN agencies, international org- organizations like Oxfam, but also local organizations. They are on the front line of this response.
3: Okay. Francesco Regamonti with Oxfam in the East and Central Horn of
6: Africa. Thank you. Thank you very much.
3: Now, it's not just the Horn of Africa facing a humanitarian crisis. Some West African countries are also struggling to meet food security demands. But the crisis there is mainly driven by Islamist insurgencies that have forced millions of people off their land in countries like Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger, and Nigeria. Many who rely on farming for their survival are prevented from accessing it. DW's Floris Chukura went to Maiduguri in Nigeria to meet one farmer who's afraid to go back, even though the government says it is safe to return.
0: Abu and his family have found safety here. Seven years ago, they ran away from their home village of Baga, 200 kilometers from here, when Boko Haram attacked. Thousands were killed, among them Abu's brother.
1: Boko Haram came into Baga firing their guns we started running,
6: but they came after us. They told my brother to put down his two-year-old daughter, and then they shot him in the neck. Abu now lives in a
0: settlement for internally displaced people. Recently, the government said it would shut down the camps. It stops NGOs from providing aid and sends people back to their villages, even though the danger of Boko Haram has not gone away. This is one of the few remaining IDP camps in Maiduguri. More than 20,000 people who fled Boko Haram insurgents in their villages live here. And for six years they depended on aid organizations for their food. Now those aid organizations are saying they can't help them anymore.
6: It's really difficult. My late brother's two children, my parents, my sick older brother's eight children all depend on me for food. We're really struggling to feed them.
0: The government says it does not want people to depend on aid, but instead they should go back to their livelihoods and farm. It gave them some money to restart their lives and worked to rebuild the villages. The government says they are safe to return home, despite frequent reports of attacks.
6: We don't relocate people where there is no peace or no security. If people feel they are not safe to return to their village or town, we give them a place that is very close to Maiduguri or somewhere else that is safe so that these people can start farming again. This is our intention.
0: Many of the displaced say they do want to go home, but only when their safety can be guaranteed.
1: Honestly, it's not right. The poor are forced to do whatever the government tells them. I'm staying here because I don't have a choice. This is not what I want.
0: Rights organizations like Human Rights Watch have criticized the government's decision, calling it unconscionable and saying it creates risks and hardships for people who have already lost everything. Without urgent aid, Hundreds of thousands of them will not know where their next meal will come from.
7: This has really brought us a lot of worries about food. Children now have to sell water to earn the money that allows us to feed them. Women go into the bush to fetch firewood and sell it to get some
0: money for food.
8: It's frightening.
0: With food supplies from aid organizations halted and no end in sight to the Boko Haram insurgency, abu and other displaced people here at the camp in meduguri can only pray that things get better
3: now food security is just one of the issues affecting africa leaders recognize the need for more collaborative solutions to make life bearable for many on the continent this week politicians and other decision makers from africa and europe got together in berlin for what is called the africa round table the event addressed topics including how the war in Ukraine is impacting lives across Africa. Decision makers at the event included Amadou Hot, Senegal's Minister of Economy, Planning and Cooperation.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, today
3: and it's a pleasure to welcome Minister Amadou Hot uh, right here with me in the studio. Thank you very much for coming.
5: Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here.
3: Very welcome. So Of all the issues discussed at the Africa Roundtable event, what, in your opinion, needs urgent attention?
5: Uh, Thank you very much for being here. The Africa Roundtable is a a great platform uh, for political and business leaders to meet, uh, to discuss pressing issues that are affecting the continent today, but also uh, to discuss on how we can strengthen the partnership between Africa uh, and Europe. And for us, it was very important uh, to be there, uh, to uh, insist uh, on the most pressing issues that we are dealing with today, especially after COVID-19, or we're still managing COVID-19, it's not 100% gone, and suddenly we have the uh, Ukrainian crisis that is affecting everybody around the world, but even more so affecting Africans.
3: Let's hammer a bit now on um, the war in Ukraine, which is affecting many around the world, including across the continent. Uh, There's rising cost of living, uh, fuel and food prices really increasing. Mm
5: -hmm. What should African countries do to ease the burden of uh, citizens? We have short-term actions that need to be taken to immediately uh, uh, reduce the impact on the population. Uh, We need to find ways uh, to reduce the impact of increase of food price and oil prices. In many African countries, uh, you need to basically uh, provide some financial support, uh, foregoing some tax revenue, because when you import product, there are tax custom duties that need to be paid, but some countries have to uh, cancel those to avoid the prices uh, increasing. Uh, at the same time, also, uh, countries need to really uh, think medium-long term. It's not acceptable that Africa that has vast arable land, that has water, that has everything, continues to rely on other countries uh, for food. But that's the case, though. It, it, and all
3: these things you saying should be done it's really not being done by many African countries and it's the ordinary person that suffers. And,
5: and, and now it's going to be done. We won't have a choice. We've seen actually during the COVID-19 crisis, several countries, including Senegal, we have put uh, food sovereignty, but also pharmaceutical sovereignty at the heart of our recovery plans. Uh, while we are executing those plans, the Ukrainian crisis has come. What we are doing right now, a couple of things. One is be providing some subsidy on food and it is affecting our budget today the increase in oil prices increase in food prices is costing us an extra uh, 3% roughly almost 3% of GDP that the government has to find from somewhere to support the poor but what we are doing also in Senegal and some countries are doing it is to do targeted cash transfers four days ago we launched a massive uh, 43 uh, billion CFA, which is about uh, a $80 million uh, initiative to really provide cash to the poorest families in Senegal, about 550,000 oh, families across the country uh, that are receiving money from the government to help them uh, address the increase in food price to address some of the bills that they have
3: now at the Africa roundtable event you touched on it a bit earlier you talked about a a paradigm shift uh, building a new
5: EU Africa partnership what's wrong with the current one and how should it be like the current one is working but we can do much better Africa has many needs and we need to accelerate Africa's development we cannot wait for 50 years or hundred years on something that we can do in 10 15 years if there is a will Whenever there is a will, the, the leadership, uh, there is a way. We've seen during the COVID times, we've been innovative, we've been bold. The world raised $20 trillion only for G20 countries to deal with COVID. And for Africa's needs, I think if people uh, believe in it and say that an Africa that is prosperous, that has a bigger, actually, uh, 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 middle class, is positive for Europe, and for the rest of the world. And the Ukrainian crisis has shown that Europe needs also to diversify its source of revenue, but also it needs to diversify the markets where it's selling its product to. That market is Africa, we believe, over the next years to come. But that market needs today big investments so that we can create the wealth and the economic opportunities for many Africans so that tomorrow they will be the consumers of Europe. Mm.
3: We've been talking about Africa beyond aid. Many African leaders have been talking about that. And um, as, as we all agree, there's a difference between talking it and walking it. What really is needed to achieve the dream of Africa beyond aid so that we
5: will be self-sufficient and self-reliant enough and not have to go out? Several things should be done domestically. We Africans, there are things we need to do. The reforms that we have started we need to do more of those reforms, in particular on domestic resource mobilization to generate more revenue for the government, which means to widen the tax base, not to increase the tax rate for the people already paying tax, but to make sure that those who don't pay tax, we bring them into the tax system, so this is one. But also the international community has to be also more, I would say, proactive when it comes to Africa's issues. One example, if you take the rating agencies, uh, for us, the ratings that are being actually assigned to Africa probably are not always reflecting the real risk on the ground. Mm-hmm. And that has to change. That has to change. Amadou Hotz,
3: Senegal's Minister of Economy, Planning and Cooperation. Many thanks for your time. Thank you very much.
8: Appreciate it. Welcome
1: back. And uh, that was a report uh, on uh, the burgeoning food deficit crisis uh, in both West Africa and the Sahel and other regions, as well as uh, East Africa and the Horn of Africa. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, and we have another report coming up on uh, the phenomenon of hyperinflation uh, that has hit the entire capitalist world. Of course, with Africa uh, still being gripped uh, under the weight of neocolonialism and imperialism, the rising prices uh, due uh, to the policies of U.S. imperialism uh, are impacting uh, the continent uh, with a vengeance. In fact, um, in the United States itself, uh, fuel prices, food prices, all-around energy prices, Uh, Prices for housing are being tremendously uh, escalated uh, due to the world capitalist crisis. The leadership of the world capitalist countries uh, in the United States, in Canada, in the United Kingdom, uh, and the European Union obviously have no strategy uh, for addressing uh, this crisis, which is not only impacting uh, Africa, and other geopolitical regions of the world, but impacting the working class and oppressed and poor within the capitalist countries themselves. Let's listen to a report on the uh, situation in the Republic of South Africa. This is a report from the South African Broadcasting Corporation, uh, SABC. Uh, let's listen
9: in. All right, we move on and a little bit earlier on we talked about inflation and it's hit 5.9% which I think is the third time in five months and that's uh, really affecting everything uh, in the country at the moment Um, and you'll see it in the fuel prices and food prices. Uh, in the shops. Uh, things are just going up all the time. Well, the CEO of 60 Global Solutions uh, a Group, uh, Kandani Msoebi, joins us now just to chat to us a little bit about what he's seeing and what all of this means. Thanks so much indeed for joining us. It's always good to talk to you. Um, these shocking figures, 5.9%, um, what impact is that having A on business and B, be
8: on uh, citizens. Good evening, and uh, thank you for having me. Um, just a little bit of a crisis. It's 360, uh, GSG, not uh, 60. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the, the inflation of 5.8, Peter, is uh, uh, very devastating for, for, for South Africa, for business and for, for consumers. And sadly, for the majority of people, That inflation rate is actually much higher than 5.8%. As you know, the lower paid employees who make up the majority of workers, they spend most of their money on transport and food, and and the transport and food is experiencing a much higher level of of inflation. I think uh, what you are seeing now is that um, there's pressure um, across the board uh, for business and for consumers, for the middle class, and the and the working class, and, uh, and, and we want to see as well that uh, there'll be a, a pressure as well as, um, on on wages as workers feel the pinch, they're going to be pushing for more wages, and and as a result of that, the businesses are going to be passing on uh, higher prices, and, and the, the cycle is just going to, uh, to continue. I think we're in a very, very um, difficult position as a country because uh, I haven't had uh, any real solutions that are, that are coming from, from um, a leadership uh, in the country in terms of how do we respond to what is happening now because it is influenced by a multiple of factors. Yeah.
9: Is there anything that companies can do to help cushion the blow for citizens? I know that they have um, huge input costs. Part of that is distribution, which requires petrol. Um, wage bills, yeah. uh, and so on and so forth. But is there any way that they can help citizens um, not to pass on these price
8: increases? I think it, it just depends on the, on the driver's uh, uh,
2: uh, uh,
8: mm. Um I think uh, it, this is going to be a very difficult period for, for both companies and, and, and consumers. I mean, if, if you consider the, the whole issue of it, of the of the, of the wheat and the distribution of fertiliser. Which uh, if there's no fertiliser, there will be a shortage of a, of a, um, a, 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 a agricultural product in the future. And I, and I think uh, the the challenge that we have is that we are not yet uh, seeing the end of uh, the conflict in a, in a, in a Ukraine. We're not yet at the point where anybody can tell you with certainty that uh, this is gonna end uh, at a particular time. I think uh, the, the, the more it continues, the more the pressure in, in the system, because the more we're gonna have a higher fuel, fuel fuel cost, and the more we're going to have a higher food cost coming into into the system. I think um, uh, uh, a lot of businesses are gonna through, go through change. Uh, bear in mind, Peter, that we, we've just come out of uh, COVID. The, the South African economy has not yet recovered, from COVID. I mean, I flew out of journalism this morning. And, and the thing that I saw at OR in comparison to what used to happen two years ago, it, it's still a way, way a long way um, at, at, at before uh, OR can, can show um, uh, the, the recovery that, that, that we think that we should be having by this right, time. Right. And, and, I, and I think that uh, reflects the activity of business that. Uh, Business people are not traveling as much as they used to. And, and one would hope that uh, if, 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 if they are meeting online, at least the level of activity, business activity is improving. But but we all know that uh, the, the economy is not yet uh, experiencing the kind of growth that we need in order to, to resolve the um, social problems in our country.
9: So, what can government do, do you think? And, and I'm asking this because I'm mindful that uh, we are part of a global economy, and we're seeing countries like the UK hitting inflation rates of 9%, and we are suffering at 59 So, if huge economies, global economies, are under the same shocks, surely that means that we're probably going to feel those effects as well, on top of... Domestic issues.
8: We we are are going to feel those uh, those uh, effects. Um, I think uh, the the UK is much closer uh, to the activity uh, in in Europe, and and hence uh, the flow of um, uh, the inflation impact is 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 felt there much quicker. Given the fact that um, uh, the heating price, the cost of actually heating the homes. Um, and and the cost of fuel is skyrocketing um, in the UK and is flowing very quickly into uh, the, the, the consumer price index. And and I think uh, for, for 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 us as a country, um, uh, w- w- one can only hope that um, we survive. It's very very difficult to to think about what government can, can do because the, the one instrument that um, that um, um, is used uh, in, in, uh, 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 to to quell inflation is uh, raising interest rates. Yeah. But when you raise interest rates in an environment where the the inflation is not driven by excessive money supply and is not driven by excessive demand, uh, and you're having uh, some kind of uh, inelastic uh, uh, demand that doesn't respond to uh, to, uh, uh, to to raising of, uh, of interest rates. We, we actually are in a situation where we have very few instruments. In fact, uh, we need creativity between National Treasury and the Reserve Bank. They, they can't continue doing what they've always done. Uh, I mean, we have seen how the Minister of Health has reduced uh, uh, the, the, the fuel increase, the, the uh, has actually managed the fuel increase in the last month um, by, by, by reducing the tax on, a, on, a, on, on petrol and on fuel. But uh, it's uh, a short-lived um, intervention because it's coming to an end uh, soon. So we need, we need uh, some very strong interventions, and I think um, the, the 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 challenge is up to now the Reserve Bank to use the the, the monetary policy not in the manner that it was always used in the past, but in the manner in the manner that responds to to what we have now, because we unfortunately have uh, the twin the evils of uh, high inflation and low employment. Now, if you, have a, if you have a combination of high inflation and high unemployment, you are actually in a very difficult position because if you raise interest rates, as has uh, always been done to deal with, uh, with, um, with inflation, you are actually going to depress employment creation more, which actually means that uh, the future cycle just continues, that the uh, people become poorer and poorer because the business is unable to take Borrow and uh, the middle class is um, is pressed even further uh, against uh, the wall and 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 the little bit that they had in order to take care of the family is eventually being a squeeze out of their pocket mm. so we, we we are in a very typical position it requires innovation and it, it requires that uh, the reserve bank should not do what it always does whenever it sees high inflation they can't raise Because when they raise interest rates, they're going to finish off the middle class. They're going to make it uh, very uh, difficult for companies to take more debt in order to to create uh, uh, more jobs and and respond to the the other social issues. Because we're not having only uh, inflation and social issues. When you're having 10 million, 12 million unemployed people, you're having a very big problem as a country.
9: You mentioned Treasury, uh, the Finance Minister defending his budget vote today. Um, did you yes. hear the right things, the right messages uh, from the Finance Minister?
8: I, I, I think uh, the sad the, the thing uh, in, in what the Finance Minister said is, is him being apologetic um, about um, uh, SOE. Right? Uh, uh, I didn't hear the message. That encourages SOEs uh, to to become more innovative, to to invest and grow in growing the economy, to take advantage of some of the opportunities that are presented by by high uh, uh, inflation. So, now if you remember the, um, uh, the, the, the 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 manner in which the SOEs will run, the SOEs will run in order to support business, support farmers, to to support mining, and uh, and, and I think we are at a point where the SOEs are are run almost like private businesses that that, that have to pursue their own narrow objectives of of survival. I think the the disappointment for me is that uh, I would have liked the minister to to give the country an indication of how National Treasury is going to leverage its power. Remember, National Treasury collects uh, over 1.5 trillion out of this economy, how are they going to leverage that 1.5 trillion in order to uh, to respond to the challenges that we have at the moment? So I'm 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 a, I'm, I'm a bit I'm not so sure as to whether the the penny has dropped that uh, we're having a crisis, and uh, if we don't resolve this crisis, it will continue to fester, and it will begin to uh, threaten even what the treasure is able to collect. I think um, mm-hmm. as a country. We are, we, are, we are fortunate that uh, during this period, community prices are running high, and as a result, we were able to uh, get um, windfall taxes from the, from the mining industry. But it's just luck, and, and you can't run for too long uh, on luck. We need, we need interventions now that are going to turn this country around rather going to turn the economy around. And we need the private sector as well uh, to come to the party in as far as um, uh, uh, the asset managers, um, as a retirement fund, to, to invest in a, in, a, in growing the economy, to take advantage of opportunities that are created by this crisis. And every crisis creates opportunities. I mean, a, a lot of countries have seen that uh, through COVID, as well as uh, through uh, the, the Ukraine uh, war, that they need to create internal capacity and manufacture a number of goods that they rely on in order to insulate themselves from the price shocks that have come out of mm-hmm. uh, what the world is in the past two to three years.
9: He talked about the need to review the country's macroeconomic policies. As a businessman, what might be some of the things that you think are essential in terms of a shift in policy?
8: I, my, my, my thing about Africa is that we've always had a, 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 a new phase in terms of use of the policy. I mean, if you remember, we, we have the MDP, uh, which uh, they are no longer talking about. The MDP has a target of 2030. Right now, you, you have to understand, Peter, that it takes a lot to 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 review and to shift government policies. Government is huge. Government is a, is a national government, the it's the is municipalities. Uh, when he says he's going to review it, uh, how much time does he need to review economic policies? my. My question would be, what projects does we have at the moment in order to, um, uh, uh, to turn the economy around? Because th- there's no point that you write a, a, a policy and become 400 pages that uh, when you read, uh, uh, by the time you reach uh, the 200th page, you actually have forgotten what was in the first 10 pages. We don't need, uh, I, I think we need a uh, uh, we need, we need projects and not uh, uh, policies. I mean, we all know what we must do. And, and government has written policies um, uh, there's IPAP. Uh, uh, there's also the policies that government has written. And, and no one has ever come back and said that IPAP has failed or the NDP has failed, and now we must bring another one. And, and you cannot have a situation where every time you, you change a minister, the new one comes in and, 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 and starts setting up a new policy. Government has to have long-term policy, but government has to have the projects on the ground. If you remember, in the in, uh, the national party, they they uh, they put man on the ground and they They put disco and, and also know how 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 Eskom was taken from the mining industry and then uh, expanded through through the state. We don't have uh, many of those projects. The state needs to uh, to get its hands and uh, and learn from doing as opposed to learning from from um, uh, from the bottom only. We've had a lot of that. We've had a lot of uh, uh, papers that come out, but we've had uh, uh, no implementation. Uh, we've had uh, no results. And, and and it cannot be that uh, every five years or every ten years we write a new policy, but we don't show any results because we never have projects. We need, we need more projects than, 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 uh, than, than, than policies and ideologies.
9: Mr. Mtsu, we're going to have to leave it there, as always. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Your insights, greatly appreciated. Thanks for your time.
8: Thank you very much. Welcome
1: back. And uh, that was an analysis uh, from the South African Broadcasting Corporation on the inflationary spiral that's impacting the Republic of South Africa as well as uh, other geopolitical regions. Uh, This is uh, the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment for today. Clark, and the tune-in title, Keep It Hid." And, uh, of course, last uh, weekend, uh, just one week ago today in Buffalo, New York, a racist uh, gunman uh, calculated uh, to kill as many African Americans as possible uh, in Buffalo, New York, uh, walking into a supermarket and uh, targeting uh, African American people for slaughter. Uh, Ten people were killed. Uh, Others were injured. And, of course, um, it has been reported uh, that this individual was motivated by what is known as replacement theory, which is a continuation of uh, the theory of eugenics and other forms of uh, racist ideology, which has been prevalent in the United States for centuries. Uh, Let's listen to a report uh, on uh, the world today in regard to the recent uh, situation in Buffalo, New York. Daily news and
2: analysis, we keep you informed and inspired. This is World
10: Today.
11: Hello and welcome to World Today, I'm Zhao Ying. The 18-year-old white gunman accused of killing 10 people in a mass shooting in a black community in Buffalo, New York, appears to have been motivated by a racist ideology known as the Great Replacement Theory. The theory claims that the white population will be gradually replaced to extinction by non-white immigrants. It has been cited as the inspiration for a number of killings in the US, Canada, and New Zealand. The theory began in white supremacist circles, but has since moved more mainstream through the endorsement of prominent politicians. The Democrats want to invite caravan after caravan of illegal aliens into our country and conservative media. In political terms, this policy
12: is called the Great Replacement, the replacement of legacy Americans with more obedient people from faraway countries.
11: According to an Associated Press poll released last week, one in three Americans now believe that an effort is underway to replace native-born Americans with immigrants for electoral gains. So where exactly does the Great Replacement Theory come from? And why are extreme views becoming mainstream in the United States? Joining our discussion today, Paul Fabrizio, Professor of Political Science at McMurray University, Rick Donham, former White House reporter at Business Week and Co-Director of Global Business Journalism Program at Tsinghua University, and also we have Derek Kassim, Professor of History at University of Texas of the Permian Basin. Gentlemen, welcome to you all, and uh, first of all, Professor Kassem, can you walk us through what is this, what this replacement theory is, is really about and where it comes from.
7: Sure. Um, so it's tied into a whole host of longstanding sort of histories in the United States. In fact, tracing back to sort of some French nationalist theorists in the 19th century. Uh, and it was picked up in various forms by organizations like the Ku Klux Klan uh, and others who embraced uh Uh, zero immigration policies uh, that resulted in in restrictions in the 1920s. But more recently, it's revived from a French theorist who explicitly talked about the great replacement theory uh, in a book that was published in about 2010. So it has both long roots and long origins uh, in, in various kind of nativist and racist histories, while at the same time being revived recently uh, with a with a stronger theoretical bent, with a very explicit connection to this idea of replacement theory, as opposed to a whole host of other threats that come from foreigners and minorities and others.
11: Okay, so Professor Donham, um, actually, what is surprising is that, as I mentioned in the beginning. A poll released just last week by the Associated Press found that roughly a third of Americans believe that there is an effort underway to replace native born Americans with immigrants for electoral gains. So, I mean, why exactly. is this conspiracy theory so popular among Americans today?
12: Well, it, it has entered the mainstream of discourse, even though it is an extreme fringe ideology, because of our division. Uh, in terms of uh, p- of political discourse. Uh, Fox News, the, the right-wing uh, propaganda channel, uh, has offered this uh, very, o- very often. One of its hosts, in fact, the leading most popular host in the United States, a man named Tucker Carlson, has talked about this as a life-and-death scenario uh, for white America, and he said it's, the country is on a suicidal path allowing immigrants to come into the country uh, and uh, he says that it is the policy of the Biden administration. He says this is this is intentional, and so you say it over and over and over again, and he is repeating the words of some of the most powerful and influential Republicans. Donald Trump, um, over and over again, used the rhetoric, even if not the slogan, great replacement um, of invasion uh, of the caravans uh, coming uh, to replace us. And Elise Stefanik, who is the number three Republican in the House of Representatives, uh, had advertisements that uh, talked about uh, this issue. She had po- political advertisements that talked about the issue, again, without using uh, the, that racist term, um, great replacement theory, but she talked about the elements of
11: it. Um, yes, but Professor Donham, is this um, the demographic change that is taking place in the U.S. that the white population is heading toward a minority status in the u s uh, that is a fact, isn't it? And, and And do you feel that it's kind of natural for people to feel uncomfortable when a group is moving from being a majority to a minority?
12: You're correct. That is a fact. and uh, I, I don't I don't think e- even shutting the American borders will not change that fact uh, because uh, there there are so many. Of uh, people from uh, Mexico and Latin America and immigrants from all over the world who have come and, and it's just it 's just a fact there are more babies uh, of of these immigrants of the of of these quote non white groups uh, than the uh, european uh northern european uh white uh, that, that do- has dominated America but I want to say this is not new. Uh, I mean, my my grandmother uh, was the uh, child of immigrants, and in in 1922, in her elementary school in Philadelphia, a teacher said uh, that, you're not Americans, you're immigrants and uh and and so this is this has been the case. this was a case uh in in going 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 back to the early years of the uh, American Republic and particularly nineteenth century with Irish and german immigrants the The old America always fears the new people who are going to overwhelm them but the the power of America is that we move forward and and we form a more perfect union and we're we we have a different America. But America has always gone through it. But there have been anti-immigrant uh, riots. There's there's been racism all through uh, all through American history.
11: Okay. So Professor Fabrizio, as um, Professor Donham just now said, this is definitely not new. But uh, when I read the coverage of, of this mass shooting, um, I I I find that most of the uh, reports say that this is a fringe idea that is moving uh, to the mainstream. Is that really the case? Is this a theory that is moving from the French to the mainstream only in recent years? Or do you feel that this is something that is deeply rooted in the American culture throughout the history of this country, uh, that this has always been a mainstream?
10: Um, I, I, I first of all, I agree with uh, uh, the previous speakers on the origin and and also its role in American history, it's been there. I'm uh, a child of immigrants, and my parents talked about the prejudice that they felt coming to the United States. And so it has made the transition this time to a more mainstream, just like in previous generations in the 1920s, uh in various times in the 1800s it went from fringe to mainstream so it it goes back and forth sometimes it becomes the dominant thing think of the know nothing party in the united states before the civil war and then it disappears for a while then it comes back again so it's a recurring theme in american history i would argue and right now we're seeing it reaching probably its greatest, I hate to use the word success, but greatest prominence uh, probably since the 1950s with the Ku Klux Klan. And, you know, it's doing that, then it's going to fade away, and then it's going to come back probably again in the future generation.
11: Okay. So, uh, Professor Kasm, um, as just now uh, we mentioned, many are linking this the mainstreaming of this theory in recent years to the rhetoric of uh, conservative politicians like Elise Stefanik um, and a media person like uh, Tucker Carlson. But I mean, uh, an advisor of Stefanik has said that uh, the Congresswoman has never advocated for any racist position or made a racist statement but he, she just opposed amnesty. And people who defend Tucker Carlson also said he had never spoken of replacement theory in terms of race, which I personally think is not true. But what do you make of the implications of these uh, perhaps less explicit and less radical version of the replacement theory?
7: Yeah, it's a sort of grand theory right now of conservative rhetoric, right? You, you pretend that you're the tough guy. You, you pretend you're the one locked truth. You pretend you're the one that is the only one willing to say certain kinds of things. And then when you called out on it, you deny that you said the things that we all have you on tape saying. Um, I mean, this isn't a case of some news reporter from the 1950s showing up with their notebook, and we can dispute what was said in the notebook. We have it on tape. We have we have Tucker Carlson talking explicitly about these things with chirons below him, emphasizing the things that he's saying and that he's quoting, and then getting on and saying he actually means something else, um, which, you know, it, it's, it's this idea that you can just tell the big lie uh, and, and get away with it. The, the bottom line is that they've been saying these kinds of things consistently. Uh, and what the, the phrase that we often use in the United States is they're saying the quiet part out loud. Which basically means the things that they whisper among themselves, that is what they really feel, they've accidentally started saying out loud. And then they're getting backlash to it and they're pretending we didn't all hear them say it. But they're they're saying it and they mean it. Um, and the reality is that we're talking about individuals who have long-standing histories of believing these kinds of things, and believing the kinds of policies that are clearly a reaction to the things that they're saying and that they obviously believe. Uh, so there's a, there's an attempt to sort of, in some cases, throw out a trial balloon and then see how it how it's responded to. But this has entered the public rhetoric. I mean, I think it's ironic, right, that those of us who are academics are accused of engaging in dangerous highfalutin theories. And the most clearly dangerous theory pervading American life right now is a theory coming about from a French theoretical philosopher from the American right these days. So it's just, uh, there's a certain level of madness, uh, in an attempt to, to tell us that the things we're hearing and seeing with our own eyes aren't true, uh, kind of an Orwellian. A, a, a approach to, to things, and it's just sort of nonsense. They believe it, they say it, and when they say they don't believe it, they then double down on it.
11: Well, okay. Well, Professor Dunham, um but actually this, this shooter, uh, according to his 180-page document, he wasn't actually radicalized by any of these mainstream avenues, uh, but he got his idea by browsing 4chan, which is a message board site uh, which for years has incubated far-right conspiracy theories. So, is this someone who is mentally unstable, who can get radicalized anyway, or do you think um, the political context is important here?
12: Well, yeah, I don't think we should allow him the out to say he is mentally unstable. Arguably, any murderer is mentally unstable because it is an antisocial act uh, to commit a mass murder. But I, I think that it raises the question that you allude to, which is the power of uh, the dark internet, the power of these racist and white supremacist uh, message boards, the power of social media to share lies uh, and to and to share violent images, uh, including uh, the video that this person uh, took as he was live-streaming his mass murder, uh, I, I think that's something that we really have to... Uh, have to deal with. I think it's an out to say that these people are mentally ill, but so many people are radicalized. I mean, we have this on two layers. One is the people who commit mass murders. Uh, One is the 30% of Americans, as you say, who believe this stuff. Uh, The the people who believe this stuff are largely people who hear it on Fox News over and over, see it on the email updates they're getting from right-wing mailing lists and newsletters. Um, But they're not the mass murderers, but the mass mass murderers very often uh, get this kind of conspiracy, I mean, deep conspiracy, uh, where violence is called for in the dark corners of the internet.
11: Okay. So, um, I mean, uh, uh, Professor Fabrizio, um, I mean, these these, uh, conservative politicians, when they are talking about this, this great replacement theory, they are actually uh, talking a more, a less explicit version of it, right? So, for example, when someone say um, I I, I'm against illegal immigration, he doesn't necessarily mean that um, these illegal immigration needs to be killed or 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 things like that. So, I mean, how do you look at the impact of these less explicit versions of of this uh, uh, conspiracy theory?
10: Um, I I I think that the, the politicians are playing with fire and they know they're playing with fire. Uh, A writer, David French, yesterday wrote about a funnel, and he said there's all these ideas that enter into the funnel at the top, the wide part, and the bad stuff, the murders, they come out at the end of the funnel, the narrow part. And he said the politicians are very aware that... Stuff is going to come out, and it's going to be the negative, and they have refused to take responsibility for it. But they know there's consequences for their actions. And, you know, it's we're talking about politicians on the right, but you go through American history, there's certainly been politicians on the left who said things and then well there's consequences there's negative actions that take place out of that as well so i i think the politicians are deliberately playing a game and it's a well known political game you say things and then as you know the other professors have talked about you deny them you deny the logical conclusion of those things and that's really what we're dealing with and what we have is an inability to hold these politicians to account the voters are not are not kicking them out of office yet
11: yes and and actually this is uh, echoed by uh, the republican representative Liz Cheney who tweeted on Monday that history has taught us that what begins with worse ends in far Uh, worse would you agree
10: yes totally she she's absolutely correct on that and i i think we've seen that all through history um you know you think back to the ku klux klan for example and some of the horrible things that southern politicians would say and then lo and behold members of the ku klux klan would go and carry them out and until the voters hold those politicians to account until the voters reject that kind of rhetoric Politicians are going to continue to do it because they know that their rhetoric wins elections. And until that's not the case, well, then this behavior continues.
11: Yes. And, and Professor Kasm, um I'm, I'm kind of wondering how did the replacement theory motivate the Buffalo suspect to target black Americans? Because, um, as we said, the theory is not especially focused on black Americans. And demographically speaking, it is actually the Latinos and Asian Americans that are the fastest growing groups in America, isn't it?
7: Yeah, I mean, part of it, of course, is that In the American, in in, in the course of American history and a hierarchy, African Americans end up taking the brunt of this kind of hostility for a whole host of reasons. Uh, It it turns out that the Buffalo Shooter and others aren't particularly close readers of theory. Uh, The other thing I would just point out, just as a sort of modest correction, is that Um, When you talk about immigrants, it probably isn't accurate to include African Americans in that. They weren't exactly voluntary immigrants to the United States, which puts them in a different category Mm -hmm. entirely. But the history of white racist violence sort of uh, almost always starts and finishes with African Americans first and foremost and then justifies everything else. I mean, if you think about... The Ku Klux Klan of the period after 1915 uh, that that rose to particular prominence in the 1920s where prominent politicians and between 3 and 5 million Americans were members of the Klan um, in both parties uh, by the the mid-1920s. You need to keep in mind that the Klan were sort of equal opportunity bigots. Um, Yes, African Americans were a target, but they were very much against immigration. They were very much against Catholics. uh, They were very much against anything that wasn't what what they called 100% Americanism. So it isn't perhaps surprising that the Buffalo murderer wasn't um, and terrorist wasn't uh, a very fine grained reader of of theory. And furthermore, that's the intent of the theory, right? The theory is to and, and I'm not a theorist at all. So even if I'm using I'm going to use a word that sometimes the theorists pull up, but it, it's it's othering people. It's creating an other. Um, And uh, that, I promise, is as deep into theory as I'm going to get. But the idea that, okay, we are true Americans, and then everyone else is an other. And and a lot of this, the, you know, the, the not getting the fine points is actually part of the point, right? So that African-Americans just simply become this undifferentiated other and as a larger minority in some areas, a relatively easy and weak target. So, I mean, sure, it's about immigration, but it turns out to be about a whole bunch of other things, right? Because they put a whole lot of power on this word legal or illegal immigration. Okay, but a lot of people want uh, a sort of blanket approach to you know you're you're allowed for example to apply for for various forms of amnesty you're va- are allowed to apply for asylum at the border and you find out that these people oppose that as well. Um, furthermore, they couldn't tell you what criminal code most illegal immigrants have have violated. Uh, and beyond that, it's not hordes at the border; it tends to be people overstaying their visas, um, which. Uh, it's a very different kind of, of immigration violation, and who knew, it turns out, that uh, uh, Irish uh, violate this rule a, 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 with as great a percentage of frequency as, as anybody else. So it might originally be tied to alleged hostility towards illegal immigrants. I only oppose the illegal immigrants, but you don't have to scratch the surface very deep uh, to find a bigot when he's someone who suddenly is deeply concerned with the fine points of American immigration policy.
11: Well, uh, Professor Donham, uh, I am actually quite confused when the believers of this theory talk about native-born Americans, because the uh, U- United States is a country built by immigrants. As you said, your grandmother is immigrant, and m- most, most of the people in America come from uh, somewhere else, except for the indigenous people. So this is a country where different people, people with different backgrounds, Live together to pursue their uh, American dreams. So, why are people now so worried that the non-white groups are going to take their power and their, their civilizations away?
12: Well, you are cor- you're correct about about uh, this throughout American history. Um, I don't think it, I, I think this is waves. I think we've talked about that the 1950s, which was anti-black racism. The 19 19- 20s and the decades leading up to it with the, with the record immigration, um, you know, the 1830s to 1850s, uh, people are always afraid of losing power, mm-hmm. losing control, and whether this is anti-immigrant or anti-black, a lot of this is about losing control. In the post-Civil War era, uh, the birth of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, the, the disenfranchisement of newly freed slaves... Uh, was because white people in the south were afraid that the slaves which outnumbered white people in some states would take power and did take did take power in the early years of democracy after the US Civil War in some some states i think we're at that phase right now uh because Republican Party has not gotten the majority of votes from most immigrants in recent decades. I mean, during Ronald Reagan's time in the 1980s, it was different. I think now what we're seeing is that the racist rhetoric has led a lot of uh, immigrants and their children away from the Republican Party, and the Republican Party's only path to maintaining power is to diminish uh, the voting power uh, of these groups i mean the the irony here is that donald trump did better near the mexican border among mexican american voters in the last election than republicans in recent presidential elections so to me there's a logical inconsistency trying to stop uh hispanic voters uh I mean, hispanics from coming in the united states and becoming citizens so they can vote at the same time of uh, you're appealing to Hispanic voters, whether in Texas along the border or in Florida with Venezuelans and Cubans. So I, I know this is this is this is a long complicated uh issue, but uh, the root is control and power.
11: Yes. Um so Professor Fabrizio, would you agree that this is um in essence it is not about illegal immigration. This is white supremacy. Professor yeah,
10: yes. Yes. Um, yeah, very, very much it's about white supremacy and illegal immigration is simply a way to talk about that. That is a key part of it. Also, I mean, we have to, I think, be fair. There are just people who are uncomfortable with Other people coming in and they feel that they're going to lose their advantage, if you will, their place in society. And it may not always be white supremacy. It might be, I have a job and this guy is coming in and this guy could take my job away from me. So you have to add to that, I believe, economic insecurity as well. And I think there's another aspect of this that isn't talked about too much. Yes,
11: Professor Paparazil, I I have to interrupt you, but when we come back, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I'd like to have you continue with the other points. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao If you're just joining us, we're looking at the mainstreaming of a racist conspiracy theory called the Great Replacement in the U.S. and its impact on American society. Joining our discussion, Paul Fabrizio, professor of political science at McMurray University. Rick Donham, former White House reporter of Business Week and co-director of Global Business Journalism Program at Tsinghua University. Derek Kassim, professor of history at University of Texas of the Permian Basin. So, Professor Fabrizio, would you like to continue with uh, your point just now about uh, white supremacy in the U.S.?
10: Yeah, uh, what I wanted to bring up, one other point that really isn't brought up very much in this great replacement theory is also the role of abortion Mm -hmm. and I bring this up because this the leader of the conservative political action committee CPAC they're having their annual convention in Hungary today and the leader Max Schlapp came out this morning and talked about it and he said if you say there's a population problem in the country but you're killing millions of your own people through legalized abortion every year if that were be reduced some of the problem would go away you have millions of people who can take many of these jobs and he says how come no one brings that up if you're worried about this quote-unquote replacement why don't we start there start with allowing our own people to live so there is a whole ecosystem of beliefs that are involved with in this replacement theory one of them is that if we eliminate abortion well, guess what? There would be a lot more, and I hate to use the word, but I'm going to say it, white people who would be here. And then we don't need to have these immigrants come to the United States.
11: Yes, and then you ban gay marriage and, and things like that. And these these are all about white supremacy, isn't it?
10: Um, well, I, I'm not sure that you can include gay marriage in that. Okay. Um, that, that, that to me, you, you might have made that argument 10, 15, 20 years ago, but I think there is a greater acceptance of gay marriage even among a lot of conservatives. Um, and so I'm not sure that they would include that now. Certainly there's some who would, but I think most are not ready to go there yet.
11: Yes, I see
10: and maybe our other panelists might disagree with that. I don't know
11: Okay, so uh, professor Kazem, um, and what do you think would you agree? Well,
10: I mean
7: look the, the, These aren't walls that are built up and hermetically sealed from one another. Um These are like the 1920s clan equal opportunity bigots So whether or not Gay marriage is tied into their great replacement theory whether or not abortion is or is not tied into this It's the same people who are producing the same sort of rights. Because keep in mind for something like gay marriage or even interracial marriage, uh, in some states you won't even have to change the law if the Supreme Court weighs in and overrules certain decisions. Uh, you'll just be able to enforce laws already on the books that were never gotten rid of, that the Supreme Court sort of eliminated um, their power. So, I mean, in the sense of whether or not opposition to gay marriage is a thing that is part of the great replacement theory. The people who are spewing the great replacement theory certainly oppose gay marriage. Um, so, I mean, they're they're capable of wearing many hats at many different times. Um, and you know, in that sense, whether it's the same policy, it comes from the same place um, of hostility towards others. Uh, and and so they'll certainly lump it in as as a policy plan, just like sort of outcome of the the abortion debate uh the way it's playing out now may not be a great replacement theory but it's certainly adjacent in a whole lot of ways simply because the venn diagram of people who embrace the one and then embrace the other and then embrace ending gay marriage uh, overlaps fairly substantially maybe not 100 percent, but fairly significantly
11: okay so uh, professor donham Actually, we know, as Joe Biden said in his speech on Tuesday in Buffalo, it was the clash in Charlottesville that, and the man was torches shouting, you will not replace us, that drove him into the presidential campaign, into what he calls the battle for the soul of America. But actually, data show that hate crimes are on the rise, with bias-motivated incidents in 37 major U.S. cities increasing by 39% from 2020 to 2021. Why is that?
12: Well, it, 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 it's that way uh, because in the right-wing media and in the right-wing information ecosystem, they're being told over and over again that Joe Biden has this as a policy. I mean, go out and get your guns, do something about it. He is off. He, he is endorsing the invasion. He is endorsing the replacement. The lieutenant governor of Texas says. This is trying to take over our country without firing a shot. And one of the congressmen from East Texas who represents my wife's home area says they want to change America. They want to replace the American electorate with third world immigrants that are coming in illegally. I mean, what's happened is the rhetoric has been dialed up so much since Joe Biden became president. He's going to take your guns. He's letting all these people in. You have to do something about it. And, yes, these people are not saying uh, that you should go shoot up people, but they are making people angry and fearful. I mean, they are lighting the match, and then they're saying they're not responsible for the conflagration, for the massive fire that that follows. And one thing I do want to say, going back to Charlottesville Mm -hmm. and that Klan and other right-wing white supremacist marches, they were not just saying, you will not replace us. They were saying... Jews will not replace us. Part of this uh, conspiracy uh, is that Jews running the media, I mean, this trope, this this anti-Semitic trope that's so old, is that that Jews are trying to replace uh, white Americans with Muslims and with people from uh, Central America and, and black people. I mean, it's so ridiculous, but again, what has happened in America is you have the white supremacy is tying these three things together: the French anti, mostly anti-African, North African, Middle Eastern uh, white supremacy with anti-Semitic uh, historical uh, conspiracy theories and traditional racism, uh, and that's really what's what's different here. And it's all all happening because the Democrats are are in charge of Washington, at least in theory, and in charge of Congress, in charge of the White House right now.
11: Yes. So, Professor Fabrizio, what do you make of Biden's efforts in, in dealing with hate crimes? For example, we know he signed the, the the COVID-19 hate crimes bill, but, I mean, why are they not enough to, to stop the mass shootings like this one?
10: Um, because we're really not dealing with the core of the issue. I mean, how do you legislate away hate? Mm -hmm. That's if, If we're talking about hate crimes, then how do you get rid of hate? And I don't know of any laws that can be proposed that could do that. Now, you can go around the edges of it and you can deal with the increased incidence of of gun violence and you can deal with the availability of guns, but there is no political will among the Republican Party and with many Democrats to do anything about that. So I I would argue, and it's not just Biden, you go back to previous presidents that have dealt with, with mass shootings, all of them really are limited in what they can do. Um, and I think in a certain sense, they're all floundering, just like we all are. How do we really stop hate crimes? Um, and, you know, you go back and you look at American history, and, you know, we were talking about the KKK and anti-nativist uh, violence and all that stuff. I mean, that has been part and parcel of American history from the beginning. Alexis de Tocqueville, when he came to the United States and wrote... In 1815, uh, Democracy in America, one of the things he talked about was we seem to be a more violent place than the Europeans were. So I'm not sure that there is any legislative fix to what we're dealing with here. Um, To be honest, I'm not sure what the solution is.
11: Yes, indeed. It's, It's really hard to deal with with hate, with, with people's minds, right? So, Professor Chasm, um I mean, when you hear all the rhetoric from, from politicians, um, when you hear that they say uh, Republicans said this, um, Democrats said this, do you feel the issue of race has been pretty much politicized, that it has, it has become a partisan issue, a tool for partisan finger-pointing, which could be a distraction from the real issue of uh, systemic racism in the U.S. and the real suffering of the minority groups.
12: Yeah, I
7: mean, I think to a degree I'd be wary about that framing simply because it sort of creates a both-sides paradigm where somehow those who loathe racism and those who engage in racism are, are on an equal plane. Um, but I certainly think that, that it's exacerbated it and that it's become part of the cultural politics of the right. And a lot Well you know, without getting too deep into sort of the history of party politics in the United States, um, it, it the reality is that uh, it's always been the right in the United States. Uh,
11: so, Professor Donham, do you think that's really the case? It is always the right-wing politicians in the U.S. that's been, um, I mean, talking about these white supremacist theories. Um, do you think that's true?
12: Well, uh, Yes, but I mean that that that's only part of what we would call domestic violence or domestic terrorism but yeah, i mean the racism is uh i mean, is is largely owned by the right, although people on the right would say that there is racism going the other way, and uh it mean, meaning uh, that they would say that the black lives matter uh people are racist they're racist against uh against white Americans. So yeah, it, it, it points to the problem of, of, of uh, how do you regulate uh, hate speech? Because it, it depends who's in power. If Donald Trump were in power, he would try to arrest Black Lives Matter protesters as, uh, for hate speech. So, but but it, but in, in, in terms of uh, racism historically, I guess if you call it if you try a left-right dichotomy, it would be the right. But I think it. I think it transcends, uh, you know, liberal conservative. I mean, this is this is hate versus tolerance, really, which is not necessarily left versus right.
11: Mm-hmm. So, Professor Fabrizio, would you agree um, this is um, this is not necessarily a partisan issue?
10: Well, it is right now in American politics is very much a partisan issue. But if I look, if you look at the larger picture, um, I certainly agree with Professor Dunham that it is beyond that. Um, it's, I mean, I, I keep thinking of you know we call them antifa today, but you go back to the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, the anarchists. You know, we would call them left-wing and the violence that they engaged in, including assassination of presidents. So, you know, this, today we're going to, because simply that's the political climate, this will be blamed on the right. Um, There will be some on the right who will say, no, this is a left-wing problem, but I think most Americans accept it as a right-wing domestic terrorism issue. The FBI, for example, even during the Trump administration, said that right-wing domestic terrorism is the number one terrorism issue that we have to face. So, uh, for today, yes, but historically, we have to be much more careful
11: about this. Okay, so, Professor Kasim, um actually, when we talk about solutions, it's, it's hard to find solutions, but Biden also said he's not naive and he knows tragedy will come again but he also said there are certain things that we can do including keeping assault weapons off the streets. I mean this is not new because there are such calls follow every mass shooting but despite those calls we are seeing that mass shootings are becoming more common and more deadly in recent years. Why is that?
7: If I knew the answer to that question, uh, i 'd be getting ready for my appearance on all the morning news shows in the United States. Um, this is uh, obviously the most vexing question if there' was a solution to it, we would we 'd have figured out a way in, in, in some ways. I mean what we need to figure out a way to do is is how do we tone down some of the rhetoric? How do we stop othering other Americans? How do we stop and, and i don 't have the vaguest idea of that and, and you know the, the, the that 's where it 's really quite easy to despair because It's not a matter of if another one's coming. It's a matter of when another one of these attacks is coming. Um, And then it's a matter of how, you know, Fox News, but also others, um, including the 4chan message boards, are then going to try to both sides the issue, you know, and how they're going to try to say, well, you know, you guys too, you guys too. (laughs) Excuse me. So the reality is that, there's such a rhetorical problem in the United States uh, and a revival of, of the worst kinds of racism that we thought were passed that it's easy to despair. Uh, because if I had a solution, believe me, I'd be I'd be proffering it um, to, to folks in the Biden White House if they'd listen. So it really is it, it really is frustrating and sad because it's not systemic in terms of the laws in a way that you can just say, OK, if we address these 30 laws, you know, if we overthrow apartheid, then. will will lead to a better day. Uh, It's a lot more complicated than that, and and gun violence certainly contributes to it.
11: Yes. Um, So, Professor Donham, I mean, you have white supremacy on on the one hand, and and you have um, the Second Amendment. Um, You have gun violence on the other hand. Do you think the two issues are interrelated?
12: Well, they're interrelated, but there is not a causal link. I mean, the, the gun violence, does not cause white supremacy white supremacy does not cause gun violence but the ready uh supply of weapons of legal weapons uh, and the hate that is out there and on these message boards the, the incitement to violence uh leads to mass killings and and so yeah I mean there's not a there, there is an interrelationship here of uh, I mean, I I thought after this Buffalo shooting, it really did bring me back to the 1950s and and the the, the heyday of the Klan with uh, lynching, with killing individual innocent black people one at a time. The difference is now we have the mass killings of innocent black people all at once in one place. So instead of 10 different lynchings in 10 cities in the South, we have 10 innocent black people killed at a supermarket Right near the Canadian border in upstate New York, and uh, and so yes, the, I mean I I, I do think uh, you could make uh, access to guns a little bit harder. Uh, you could increase the penalties for people who kill, but I don't think this would stop. I don't think this would stop stop the killing. I think that's a societal issue that's rooted in the internet and social media, and will not change until we have a different way that we as uh, people in the world get information. I think in this Internet era, in this social media era, it's just so easy to communicate and find like-minded people uh, in your country or around the world uh, that I don't think there's any, any way to completely eliminate this this problem.
11: Okay. Since we uh, talk, mentioned uh, the Internet, uh, Professor Fabrizio, what do you make of the role of the Internet in amplifying all these extremist ideas?
10: Uh, Certainly, the Internet is absolutely responsible for amplifying these ideas. However, we have to be careful, because if you're not going to use the Internet, there's other things that can be used and have been used in the past. I mean, I I was just reading a classic book in American political science called The Paranoid Style of politics. It was written in early 1960s, and the political scientist Richard Hofstadter, who wrote the book, what did he talk about? He was talking about right-wings, conservatives who were talking about replacement theory, who looked like they were going to be supporting Barry Goldwater's radical ideas, and they were getting ideas from television. And He was talking about how the use of television was allowing these ideas to spread. So even if we were to come up with some way to really control the Internet, which I'm not sure is possible and I'm not sure it's a good idea, it doesn't mean there won't be other ways to get ideas around. And so the Internet is simply, to me, a means and if it's not there well there's going to be many other ways just like in american history there were many other ways to spread these horrible toxic ideas so Mm. controlling the internet i don't think is really going to do much good
11: okay that's true um i mean but the internet do make does make the um uh, those theories to spread faster isn't it so professor uh, what do you make of the role of, of the Internet in spreading all these ideas?
2: Well,
7: first off, we have a blasphemy that will not stand. Richard Hofstadter was a historian, not a political scientist. So let's be very clear on that. Um, but, but, yeah, look, the Internet, the is that it's a, it's a, it's a tool with um, a, a great deal of promise and a great deal of threat, right, because we also use it to combat uh, white supremacy and hate and, and, and so on and so forth. So it, it frankly is a very sophisticated but very cruel, uh, crude tool to address, um, a lot of these issues. And yeah, look, it, it amplifies hate speech. It also amplifies, uh, a whole host of things. Charity. It also emphasizes positive movements. It also emphasizes, um, You know, so for victims of violence, oftentimes the Internet is the the go-to place. Um, You know, Internet, neither bad nor good. Uh, I think there's something to be said, though, for a curated kind of Internet like that. In other words, Twitter being the Wild West is a worse version of Twitter than a Twitter that has moderation policies, even if we have to debate what those moderation policies are. So, in other words, I am not saying how Twitter is right now is the way it ought to be run. I am saying, however, that a Twitter where there are no rules becomes a really ghastly place. Just like a society where there's no rules cracking down on things, it means the most violent person sort of wins out. So, you know, the Internet, I don't think in this case is either good or bad. It certainly is a tool that's being used by the bad guys. uh, And we need to figure out ways to address that in a more sophisticated fashion. Um, And we certainly need to identify people engaging in hate uh and, and not more importantly, organizing for hate. But it's hard to simply say internet bad. After all, if it weren't for the internet, I would not be talking to you right now.
11: Okay, yes. So Professor Donham, I mean, what should be the rules be look like? Because there's no legal definition of hate speech under U.S. law. So when people suggest that public figures should be careful about their rhetoric, some would argue that this is their freedom of speech that's protected by the First Amendment. And when you look at the rhetoric of Tucker Carlson and Elise Stefanik, uh, maybe they are not that explicitly racist. And then also when Donald Trump was banned on, on social media, there were people who argued that this is a violation to the right of freedom of speech. So, I mean, how how do you draw the line?
12: You're correct. In a society that believes in freedom of speech, uh, you can say controversial things. You can say irresponsible things. I mean, the line is crossed, and where the First Amendment uh is 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 limited is uh incitement of violence or uh death destruction uh and so there there are there are limits but defining hate speech is very very difficult because donald trump's definition or the republican congress's definition of what is hate speech would be very different than what joe biden might think is hate speech or what you or i might think is hate speech and so it's really dangerous if the government is going to define it or define it in a nebulous way in an unspecific way because then it is left up uh... to prosecutors whether it's local or federal to interpret and that's very dangerous because it would it would lean toward people in power i mean the one thing i think could have an impact is if you change the laws in the united states about internet carriers and treated them, as opposed to treating them as as neutral platforms, treating them as publishers, like newspapers or like television networks, where they could face civil liability for what is on their platforms. That would give them an incentive to police the platforms better. I mean there's no perfect answer and and, th- and this could be problematic as well because how do how do they self censor or censor uh voices but if they had some more uh legal risk, they would have much more of an incentive uh to try to prevent uh the hate speech or at least in the case of this you know, live streaming of uh
11: Yes, but I mean, I, I do agree that uh, these companies, they should be publishers and not postmen. But I mean, if you think the government should not be making the rules, do you think it should be up to these companies, these tech giants to decide what is appropriate and what is not, rather than the government, which theoretically speaking represents the interest of the majority?
12: Um, the 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 answer is i mean the government has to set guidelines but the companies have to uh have to have to self police i mean that that that's, that's that's really i mean that 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 is the first responsibility
11: okay so uh, professor fabrizio what is your thought on this
10: oh i <laughs> i'm i'm struggling just like everybody else this is a really frustrating thing um We so want to be careful that we don't encroach on people's freedoms. But at the same time, we want to stop hate speech, that we really struggle for what's the right way to define that, what's the right way to legislate it, what's the right way to regulate it. And I don't have any magic solutions. I'm, you know, uh, ideally, philosophically... I think the answer to hate speech is simply more people speaking love. Mm -hmm. But how do you do that? And I don't have any good answers. And I'm I'm sorry, I I wish I had something, but I'm as frustrated as so many other people as we look at this. I I think there's just a realization when you look at American history, there has been hate all through it, and we're simply in another period of obvious hate yeah. and you know we have to rely on the hope that in time this will fade away but unfortunately at some point in the future it'll come back again that's okay. not very optimistic I'm
11: uh, uh, sorry okay well let's speak more love i mean but thank you Professor Paul Brazil, Rick Donham, and Derek Kassem. And thank you all for being with us. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. I'm Jiao Thank you.
1: Welcome back. And that was uh, World Today. And that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today. If you'd like to have access uh, to uh, this program, uh, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of legendary uh, jazz saxophonist uh, Jackie McLean from the 1966 album entitled Dr. Jackal. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. I'm <laughs> sorry.